if those who are going to uh, reach kids can be dismissed now, uh, <laughs> Laura's really ready for you. <laughs> uh, so ages four through eight primarily. So, yeah. All right. Uh, so you're welcome to jump out. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you want to join me in prayer, let's pray. Father, we praise you as the one who is great. We praise you as our Lord. We praise you as the one who is worthy of worship. And so, Father, I ask that this time would be once again be a time of worship. They would praise and worship you, Father, because you are the great Savior of our souls. Father, as we look at your word, we ask that you would bless it, that by the Spirit, you would enlighten our minds and our hearts and our affections to focus on you and, and our worship of you. Father, would you, would you work through your word as you promised to do? We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, today we are continuing in our series, The Crescendo to the Empty Tomb. And we're focusing on that because Easter can have a tendency to catch us off guard. Uh, Christmas, Christmas does not catch us off guard. Christmas, you, usually by the time it comes, you're sick of hearing about Christmas, right? You have kind of four months of prep time. Easter is not like that. Easter, you usually get a couple weeks, and oftentimes we're not really prepared for Easter uh, spiritually. Uh, we haven't had time to prepare our hearts as we should. And that's, a, that's not good because Easter is kind of the pinnacle of the church calendar, it is uh, the climax of it all that everything that we believe kind of comes to fruition in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is our chance to focus our hearts on uh, the empty tomb on Jesus Christ's resurrection. That that is our hope. And in turn, uh, we are focusing on the fact that we will be resurrected one day. And that that is our, our larger hope, that we have a, a living Savior and that we will be alive as he is alive. All right. So to do that, we're looking at um, how Jesus' whole life is kind of marching towards his death and resurrection. So last week we talked about his first warning, or his first uh, prediction of his death to his disciples. And we saw how with that prediction came uh, the call to carry our crosses, to deny ourselves and carry our crosses, to bear them with Jesus. And every time we see uh, Jesus talking about predictions of his death and resurrection, we see these really intense calls. Calls to die with Christ that we may be raised with him. And so today we're looking at the third prediction. We're jumping over the second prediction. So we just don't have time for all of them. So we're jumping to the third prediction. And in the third prediction, Jesus teaches his disciples about greatness. And what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. So that's going to be what we're talking about today. What it means to be great. How we can move towards greatness. Now, so we can kind of wrap our heads around that word. What does that mean to be great? I think it means to be, to be valuable. To be kind of a, a notch above even. Um, to be worthy. To be praiseworthy. To be honored. To be glorified. Those are all of those things that, that are wrapped up in this word greatness. Now, for some of you, uh, you have a natural desire for that, that you want to be great. 
We want glory. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we tend to say, well, that, that's, that's not good. You can have bad motives for that, but it's not a bad thing to be great. Uh, we can sometimes do that because we're insecure and, and, and need something to bolster us up or because or we want an excuse for our pride so we can judge other people. But uh, greatness is something that actually God, God calls us to in a sense if we, if we are ready for it. And if that's you, you feel like, okay, I, I do have that desire. Uh, we want to steer you in the right direction and show how, is, how does Christ set that path for us? But there's others of you who, who probably are thinking this, like, well, I just want to be a normal old person. I have no desire to be great. I have no desire to be, to be fancy, to be a, above anyone else. I just, I just want to get through. All right, this sermon still is, is relevant to you because... Uh, the concept of greatness and glory, first of all, it's present in our world. And there are lots of counterfeit versions of greatness that the world is trying to sell us. And so we need to know who is actually worthy of honor, of praise, who is actually worth following by the standards of Jesus Christ. All right? So whether you're pursuing greatness or not, we need to know what greatness looks like in the, in the eyes of our God and our Savior. All right, so that's going to be our goal today. And with that, we are going to jump into Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. And read with me. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they are indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them, called them to him, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. So as we think about this concept of greatness, we're going to look at, at three different aspects. Uh, first of all, we're going to see that there is kind of a naivety to our a desire for greatness. That we need to be careful of asking for it and what it entails. Secondly, we're going to see that 
Jesus prevents a, a true test for greatness. And third, we're going to see what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right? So kind of the, the desire for it, the test for it, and the better kingdom. So let's jump right into this. The story starts with Jesus foretelling his third and final time that, that he will die in the crucifixion and be raised back to life. Okay, that's, that's pretty expected. But here comes, here comes mom. Not Jesus' mom, but the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She comes to have a little discussion with Jesus. And uh, who are the sons of Zebedee? They're, they're two apostles. They're later to become apostles. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now these are actually two kind of fiery characters of the apostles. Uh, Jesus gives them a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Uh, mostly because they're kind of... They're kind of firebrands. Uh, they're the ones who ask Jesus if, if they're allowed to send fire raining down on Jesus' enemies. Jesus says, no, like, please don't do that. That's, <laughs> that's not very necessary. I'll, I'll take care of it. Um, but this is, this is them not looking their most fiery as, as mother comes to ask a request from Jesus. And what does she ask? The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. All right. So what do we think of this request? Um, <laughs> what was that, Steve? <laughs> I, think, I think we can be too hard on, on this lady. Too hard on her. All right, because there's, there's other options that she could have, uh, other places she could have gone. So she's going to Jesus and asking that her sons might have a great place in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, she could have gone to other places. She could have gone to uh, the Roman government and asked for, for a place of greatness in the, the Roman military. Uh, we'd probably advise against that. She probably, she could have been the helicopter mom who's making sure her sons were in the best schools, become the, the greatest of scribes and Pharisees so that they could be at the top of the, the Sanhedrin, the religious institution. She could have done that. But no, she goes, she goes to Jesus Christ, who is, is the true Lord. He's the ruler of the true kingdom. And so she's going to go to someone. It's actually uh, better for her to have gone to Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is the equivalent of a mother nowadays not looking for greatness from her kids in, in athletics or in the arts or in academics. No, she's, she's going and like, I want my kid to be great in, in Jesus' kingdom. And I would say that in general, like, she's coming to Jesus with, with a good request. That that desire to be great in the kingdom of, of Jesus is not necessarily a bad one. Not necessarily a bad one. And Jesus does not rebuke her for asking this question. What does he say? What does he say? Verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. He doesn't rebuke her saying that, that she's asking for something bad. It's just that she doesn't understand what she's asking. And why doesn't she understand... Like she doesn't understand because 
She doesn't know what that's going to entail. She's being naive about this. And that, yes, greatness in the kingdom is, is a good thing, but it's not going to entail great things for her children. That to ask that for her kids uh, entails a lot more than I think she's probably bargaining for. And I think we need to recognize that, that we can learn from this woman. For those of you with kids, I think we have a natural desire for our kids to, to be great in the kingdom of Jesus. That we wish that they had, would have a great love for Jesus. Um, that they would put him first. We have to recognize what we're really asking for there. That there is a lot more to that request than just that, that they would be happy and healthy. No, we are, we're asking that, that God would do anything to make them great. And that that entails letting God uh, allow them to suffer and to go through trials, to come to know God personally. Um, that that's not going to be a walk in the park for our children. And we have to be ready for that. But more holistically, for everyone, we have to recognize that when we come to Jesus asking for things in his kingdom, we have to recognize that those things come at a cost. And that they're going to be harder, harder blessings than we, we probably think uh, we're asking for. So if you're asking for, for the love of God, it seems like an innocent one. You're asking for God's love for you. You're going to get more than you bargained for. You get the relentless love of Jesus. And you're going to get the jealous love of God who allows for, for no equals. And you're going to get uh, the disciplinary love that's going to take from you the things that are harmful to you. Or talk about the peace of God. I, I want the peace of God. When you ask that, you're going to have to duck, as PB would say. You better duck because he's going to wreck everything in your life that you think your peace is founded upon. Until you've got nothing but Jesus, and then you will know true peace. Ask for joy. And God is going to pluck away all of those false happinesses and give you the true joy that is found in Jesus Christ. We have to recognize that the things we ask for, there are sometimes hard-fought blessings. And I think that's what he's trying to, to show this woman. That greatness in the kingdom of Jesus it actually comes at, at quite a cost. Now that brings us to our second point. Uh, our second point is somewhere around here. The second point, <laughs> um, Jesus is now going to kind of show the sons of Zebedee what really is required. And what he's going to do, he's going to issue them a test. He's going to give them a test. Which makes sense because anytime you get greatness, you're declared to be great, there's always a test. Right? No one is declared great. Uh, no athlete is declared great because they, they sat on the bench. No, they actually have to go out into the game. They have to, they have to fight the battle. And coaches, think of John Wooden. He, he had to go and, and do things to be great. You don't just get declared great because you asked for it. And so Jesus imposes his version of a test for greatness. 
And what is his test? Uh, what verse is this? Uh, 21. Or sorry, 20, 22. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, that seems easy enough. Yeah, we are able. Now, what is this cup? Now, maybe they think that this is the cup of blessing. That this is the king's cup. That they can be cupbearers and, oh yeah, yeah, I can, I can handle the, the king's wine. No problem there. Uh, we know better. That's, that's not what this cup is. What is this cup? This is the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. So God is, is storing up in every sin uh, his judgment against sin. And every sin gets a, another drop in the cup of God's wrath. His judgment against those things. And scripture tells us that that, that cup is, is foaming over. That it is full. And that it, it, it destroys those who would drink it. That is the poison of, of God's wrath against sin. And the irony of it is that that, that is Jesus' cup. When Jesus has no business having that cup. He's the only person in all of history who didn't contribute a drop to that cup and yet it, it becomes his. Jesus' cup is a judgment that's, uh, that's for us. That's for other people. He's taking on other people's suffering, other people's judgment. That's what Jesus' cup is. And then we ask, okay, okay, if that's, that's Jesus' cup, he then says to him, says to them in verse 23, you will drink my cup. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that, that these apostles will drink from the cup of Jesus? I think from the context, we can see that the apostles will be given their own kind of vicarious cup to drink. That there are going to be other people that they are called to minister to. And they are going to be called to suffer for the sake of other people. And to die for the sake of other people. To even be judged for the sake of other people. That that is bearing the cup of judgment for the sake of others. That is the test for greatness. It's to the extent that they are willing to take on other people's sufferings, other people's judgment. Alright. That's hard. That is, that is very hard. But that is Jesus' standard for greatness. And I think, uh, as a culture, I think we, we don't even understand this because... Um, we have so much that we use to, to distance ourselves from this kind of thing. That we have sayings like, well, they made their bed, they need to lie in it. And, well, they need to, they need to bear the consequences for their sin. Um, they need to learn the hard way. Um, that is not what he's saying here. It's that to be Christ and to bear Christ's cup is to suffer and to be judged on, because other people messed up. Because other people sinned. And you are actually embodying Christ and going into that. 
right. That is the test for greatness. And so uh, that's, that's really, really hard. But I'd ask you, ask you now, what is your test for greatness? What do you use to judge the greatness of other people? If they're worthy, if they're valuable, if they're worth following. Is it, is it that standard? I, it, it probably isn't. It's probably uh, how successful they are, how fun they are, how interesting, how attractive, how intelligent, all those things. They have all of these other things that, that make someone worthy in our mind to, to wear this badge of greatness. But this is Jesus' test. And based upon that test, uh, certain people will, will be elevated. To sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So you don't just ask for this stuff. God appoints these people. They have, they have passed a test, in a sense. And the thing is that you can't be on the left and right hand of Jesus Christ in his kingdom without first being on the, the left and right hand of, of the cross. That you have to be numbered with the, the murderers and the thieves and the, the robbers before you could be numbered uh, at those at Jesus' left and right hand. So then, um, with that in mind, um, are you pursuing greatness in God's kingdom? And if you're pursuing greatness in God's kingdom, who has God given you to suffer for? To suffer with? To bear the judgment with someone else? What does that look like? I would, I would challenge you to think about that. What, what will that look like? Um, even this week. Who are those people? How are we going to do this, though? That is, that is the bigger question. Because I think we have to recognize that, that this is death. This is the death of our honor and our glory and all the things that we, we love and hold dear. Um, this is death. And so I want to zoom out and ask, uh, why is this the case in the kingdom of God? Why is this the requirement for greatness? I think it's, the answer would be that it's because of the nature of God's kingdom. The nature of God's kingdom. And in turn, the nature of, of our king. And so his problem is that when he talks to the disciples, he sees that none of them are fit to lead yet. Because their hearts aren't aligned to the hearts of the kingdom. Look at verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now why are they indignant? It's, you're not allowed to ask for that because clearly we want it too. Everyone wants to be at Jesus' left and right hand side. Um, and they're cheating. They're cheating because I should have selfishly thought of that first. How dare they recruit their mother to go ask them for that? <laughs> that adds another like lowness to it. You get mom to go ask him. <laughs> Sad lady asking Jesus. Um, but it just reveals that 
the heart of all of the disciples, like none is better. They're all, they're all jockeying for position. They all want the good, the good seats. And it seems to be very self-motivated, self-glorifying, self-involved. And that's where Jesus has to take them aside. He brings them aside and explains his kingdom once again to them. And how does he explain it? First, he talks about what the kingdom of the world is like. Verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he tells them the nature of earthly greatness. And what do the rulers of this age do? They rule so that they can put on airs. So that they can lord it over them. That they're using their authority so that they can be better than the people that they rule. That they can kind of stroke their ego and feel like they're, they're better than those, those lowly peons that they have to rule. It's fueling their arrogance. It's fueling their, their superiority. And Jesus is saying that, that there is no place for that in his kingdom. There is no place for that in his kingdom. And if that's why we want greatness, we're never going to get it. Because Jesus is going to do everything to fight us getting that greatness because it's not real and it's not true. All right. What about the, those, the, the great ones? The great ones exercise authority over people. They're in authority so that they can, not so that they can suffer or serve people. It's so that they can actually avoid suffering. Make other people do the dirty work. Make other people do the hard stuff. That is the world's way of leadership. It's to, to avoid these things. That is the way of the world. That's the way of the world where uh, oftentimes the most selfish or prideful or arrogant people rise to the top because they really do think they're better and, and are not content to serve. And that's where Jesus says that, that he will not tolerate such a kingdom. Because in that kind of kingdom, the people, the people become the slaves. And the people are used and the people are devoured, as he would say. That the wolves would devour the sheep. And so he gives a better kingdom. That if anyone is going to rule in his kingdom, they have to pass the test. A whole lifelong test of proving that they... They are willing to serve and love others. Verse 26. It shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now can we imagine a kingdom where this is the basis for leadership? How would this change the nature of the kingdom? Well, first of all, the people who lead would have, would have compassion and, and sympathy and, and mercy on the people because they know what they're going through. They're not just off in their towers. No, they've, they've been down in the trenches with people. And the test is that, that the leaders would care more about the people's needs than their own glory. 
They would not be using the people to gain glory. They'd actually use whatever influence they have to serve the people more and serve the people better. That there's a love for the people. Now that's, that's a beautiful kingdom. And I think a kingdom that, that we want to be a part of. And a kingdom that we want to embody. That as we are uh, parents, or as we are bosses, as we are leaders in the church, that that is what we want to embody. A kingdom where, where the, the lowest people are served and treated um, amazingly well. But I think the hard part is that um, that we don't want that for ourselves. Right? Our, our great sin is that we want to be the greatest. We want to be the greatest. We don't want to bear the cup that Jesus has given us. And that's where that's where that cup that cup is, is a heavy load to bear the sufferings of others. But we need to put it in context. That who really bore the cup of wrath? It is not us. It is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ bore the cup of wrath in a different way and in a, a much more glorious way than any of us ever will. That when Jesus entered into the suffering of his people and paid for their sins and was judged for it, he didn't just do it lending a helping hand. On the cross, he, he drank that whole cup. There is no wrath left for those who are found in Jesus. And on the cross, he, he was punished for all of that wrath that, that he consumed. And he was utterly destroyed by it. Completely destroyed. That is the death part. That Jesus already took that cup. In a different way than we will ever have to. He took our cup of wrath. But then we have the resurrection. Then we have the resurrection. And what is the resurrection? The resurrection is, is Jesus' coronation. That he is raised up in glory. That he becomes the king because he deserves it. He deserves to be a king in a different way than before he was crucified. That he, he was the only one who really, who really passed the test for greatness. That he gave everything for his people. And therefore, he gets to be king in the kingdom because he will be a deserving king. He will be the king that actually loves his people and gives himself to the people. Puts the people first. And that's where we, we struggle to, to obey God. We struggle to, to connect with this kingdom. And I think we've, we've forgotten what a great king it is that we, we serve. That we only serve because he served us first. And he loved us first. He died for us first. And so when we talk about bearing that cup of other people's suffering and other people's judgment, we do that in context. That we primarily do not get the cup of judgment and wrath. We get, we get the cup right here. This is our cup. And what is that cup? That cup is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
that we drink the blood of our king. And that by that blood, we have no need to drink the cup of wrath. That he delivered us. That he saved us. That he put us first. That he saved us out of our sin that, that causes us to, to be so self-focused and think all about our greatness. And he proved his greatness on the cross. That he is worth being the, the leader to follow and the one to honor and the one to glorify, the one to love. And so, as we, as we drink this cup, may it give us perseverance. Perseverance to take that cup of suffering knowing that, that this is our, our destination. That we will be resurrected. And in that resurrection, there will be no more cup of sorrow, no more cup of death, no more cup of judgment. It will be that cup of blessing. The blessing cup that is, that is overflowing with joy, with blessing, with, with the glory of, of God. And so let's, let's keep that in context. And let's, let's receive our king with joy. That he is our great king. And when we are resurrected with him, we will be part of that great kingdom. And at that point, I think, some of this battle for greatness will be washed away. And we will see the true greatness of Jesus Christ. And we will be humbled, but we will know that we are part of a, a great and glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we, we sometimes balk at your, your amazing commandments that they are too heavy for us. And Father, um, we ask that we be humbled to see that in some sense they are not for us. They are for Christ. That he is the true great one. And that we in our sin and, and we in our apathy, we, we are not deserving of such positions. And so Father, I ask that you would keep us from elevating ourselves. Father, would we worship you and through Christ as, as our king? We rejoice that we get to be a part of your people. That you've cleansed us from sin. You have uh, opened our eyes to see that we are not so great. And yet you are. Father, as we partake of your communion, we ask that you would help us to rejoice. That we rejoice that there is no more cup of wrath. There is exclusively the cup of joy. And uh, as that is spiritually true, Father, I ask that you would help us to take up the cup of, of suffering and wrath on behalf of others, knowing that these are, are light and momentary afflictions that will produce an eternal weight of glory. We pray this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.